Parsha's Tetzava has, the first half of the parsha is about the big Dekahuna, the special priestly vestments worn by Aaron and his children, the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen Hediot. Second half of the parsha is about the Karbanas they brought, they were going to bring when they began operating the Mishkan, a little bit about the Karban Tumid and so on. I've always been fascinated, and we've spoken a couple of times in the past, about the Urim Vitumim. The Urim Vitumim were some aspect of the Choshen. I've always been fascinated by how deeply mysterious they were. The Torah is giving you these descriptions of how to, of how to construct the Choshen. You take straps, and you take wool of different types, and you have chains, and you have boxes, and you have stones. It's all very technical and very detailed and very concrete. And all of a sudden, the Torah just drops in there out of the blue. And then you put inside, you put inside the Urim Vitumim. What on earth are Urim Vitumim? What kind of word is Urim? What kind of word is Tumim? What on earth does that mean? The Torah is giving you so many detailed instructions for every single part of the Mishkan. The instructions are, are blueprints. There are dimensions. There are exact linear dimensions. There are materials. There are, there, are, there are techniques and craftsmanship. Everything is so concrete and so specific and so down to earth. We don't always know why the Torah said to make it exactly like that, but at least the what, at least what the Torah is telling you to do is very, very clear and very, very transparent. And all of a sudden, the Torah just mentions these mysterious things, Urim Vitumim, no, no attempt to explain what they are. The Torah might deliberately want to keep it something of a mystery, but whatever it is, it's just such a, just such a fascinating and uh, fascinatingly mysterious comment. What exactly are Urim Vitumim? We've discussed in previous years different opinions about what they are exactly. We also discussed the, the idea that it's clear from elsewhere in Tanakh and elsewhere in the Nevi'im, Nevi'im Rishonim, Nevi'im Achronim, that the Urim Vitumim were used uh, as a kind of oracle, that, that they were a means by which God communicated with, uh, with the people of Israel. They would ask questions, the Talmud elaborates, but even in the biblical text itself already, we find they, they put various questions to God, to, to the Kohen wearing the ephod, to the Urim Vitumim. It's pretty clear from Tanakh, it's even more clear from Tarash Balpeh, that the Urim Vitumim served as some kind of conduit between God and the people. But today I want to cover some of the same ground we've covered previously. I want to begin by summarizing briefly the, the half dozen or so different major opinions in the medieval commentaries mostly about what exactly the Urim Vitumim were, and then I want to focus on one particularly uh, striking explanation of Ibn Ezra, who uh, seems to say, that's how he's been interpreted by some later scholars, that Ibn Ezra, that the Urim Batumim was the astrolabe. If you want a sneak peek of what an astrolabe is, you can look at the last page of the handout, where I included a picture, hopefully it came through. But uh, as I said, first we'll go through some of the major opinions, that we'll, we'll go through most of the major opinions of the Rishonim, and then we'll discuss uh, the Ben Ezra's uh, strange and provocative ideas about the about the Urmatuma being an astrolabe, and then we will discuss some other uh, some other incidents, uh, some other occurrences of the astrolabe in halacha. There aren't a whole lot, but uh, the one that there is is of enormous practical import, even though the astrolabe itself is uh, an archaic instrument. So, what exactly was the the Urmatumim? Most people are probably familiar, most familiar with the opinion of Rashi. Rashi says on the Parsha, what is the Urim Batumim? It is a written Shema Mepharash, a, a, a mystic name of God. It was placed inside the fold to the Choshen. The Choshen was a rectangle folded over to make a square. In that little pouch that, that the fold formed, 
they put a they put a written version of the Shem Mefarish, a parchment, and that was kind of the, the software or the mystic power that powered the Choshen through the Urim Vatumim, that's what enabled the Choshen to perform its oracular function, to convey God's will, to help to, to enable God to communicate with people, to enable people to communicate with God, perhaps would be a better way of putting it. And that's what Rashi says. It was a ksav with Urim Vatumim. That is probably the, the best known pshat. The Gaonim, the Gaonim did not apparently understand, at least some of the Gaonim didn't understand it like that. The Gaonim said that the Avne HaEfod, the stones of the Ephod, were called Urim Vatumim. The Gaonim said that the, without question, Bavadai, certainly it was the stones of the Ephod that were called Urim Vatumim. And Urvatumim is some kind of uh, is some kind of respectful way to, to refer to them. Lashon Shvach. It was a uh, it was it was somehow a a formal a, a polite and respectful way to refer to the stones of the Choshen. The Ephod, they were referred to as Urvatumim. Not clear exactly what that means, but the Gaonim understood that the they kind of demystified the Urvatumim. They weren't some kind of mystic name of God, not a mysterious parchment. They were simply a, uh, a fancy title for the stones of Aphod. This idea of the Gaonim is reflected to some extent in the Rambam. The Rambam often follows the Gaonic tradition, but in this case, the Rambam seems to have followed a similar view that the Urim was not something separate, not something added to the Choshen. The Urim was essentially another name, a title for the Choshen, or for some part of the Choshen. The Choshen was the breastplate that the Kohen God wore. As we said, it was a rectangular piece of fabric folded into two and placed over the placed over the the coin the Gadol's torso over his chest. It had the twelve stones for the for the twelve uh, it had the twelve stones for the twelve shvatim, kind of the iconic uh, image of the coin Gadol with his colorful breastplate with the twelve stones. So, according to the Rambam, apparently the Rambatumim was just another name for the Choshen or for part of the Choshen for the stones. What the Rambam writes, the Rambam is interpreting a Gemara. The Gemara, several Gemaras, the Gemara says that the Urim Vitumim were not around or were not functioning during the period of the Second Temple. The Gemara in Yoma says there were five things that were present in Mikdash Rishon in the First Temple and were missing, were, were, were not present in the Second Temple, and one of them was Urim Vitumim. The Urim Vitumim were not present in the, in the Second Temple. So, what does that mean? They weren't present in the Second Temple. The Gemara in Sota also mentions Mishamesu Nevi'im Arishonim Batlurim Vatumim. When the Nevi'im Rishonim passed away, the Urim Vatumim were Batel, they were nullified, they weren't there or they didn't function. Again, who are the Nevi'im Rishonim? The Gemara in Sota has a lengthy discussion trying to figure out what that means. The conclusion of the Gemara is that Nevi'im Rishonim means, as opposed to Chagai Zechariah Malachi, who were the last of the Nevi'im, and it means when they died, when the, when the, when, that when, that, that when Chagai Zechariah Malachi died, the, that's when, that's when Ruch HaKodesh left the Jewish people. So the Urim the Gemara proves, was, was around and were functioning till that period, but from that period on, the Urim were no longer operational. During the Second Temple, they were at the beginning of the Second Temple. During the Second Temple, the Urim was not operational. So the Rambam, when he interprets this Gemara, that there was no Urim Vatum in the Second Temple, the Rambam says, there were, actually there were Urim Vatum in the Second Temple. They were there, they were physically there, but they were not functional. 
they were, uh, they, they were non-operational. Lo Baruch HaKodesh. They did not implement their function of uh, answering questions via the Holy Spirit. And they wouldn't, ask, they wouldn't pose questions to them. So why did they make them at all? If they weren't operational, why bother making them at all? So the Rambam says, Halacha, the Kohen Gadol has to have eight garments. If he'd be missing any one garment, that he can't do that voda. So they had to do it to fulfill the formal halachic requirement of having the eight garments, but they were not actually functional. So the Ravid, the Ravid in his notes to the Rambam, the Ravid says that the, that, that's not what Chazal meant, that the, that's not what Chazal mean. There were nowhere in the tomb, they weren't there at all. So what, uh, what happened to the Rambam's objection that they were missing the Begadim? The Rambatumim were not a Begad. The Rambatumim were something else. The Rambatumim were something in addition to one of the Begadim. They were an add-on to the Begadim. They were not one of the eight garments themselves. And the later Echronim explained that the Rambam and the Ravid are arguing what the Rambatumim were. The Rambam understood, the Kazimishnah explains, later Echronim explained, the Rambam understood, similar to the Gaonim really, that the Rambatumim were the Choshen, or the stones of the Choshen, but they were essentially the Choshen. So we can't possibly say they didn't have them at all, because they're missing the Choshen. A Kongadol can't serve in his office without a Choshen. So of course they were there. The Choshen was there. It wasn't operational, but it served, the, it served to fulfill the, the formal requirement of the Kongadol wearing his full complement of priestly vestments. The Ravid understood something like Rashi. Or the Tumim were something, a piece of parchment, divine name, added into the Choshen, and that was actually missing. That was physically missing. It wasn't there. And it's not considered Mechusar Begadim, it's not considered the Kohen Gadol is missing one of his garments. He had all eight garments. He was missing the parchment. That's not one of the garments. The parchment is not a garment. So the Rambam and the Rabbids seem to be a, another version of the Machlokis between Rashi and the Gaonim, that the, the Rambam follows the Gaonim, that the Urim Batumim was not something new, it was simply another name for the Choshen. It was there during Bayasheni, even though it wasn't operational. The Rabbid understands, like Rashi, that the Urim Batumim was something added to the Choshen, something that that gave it life, that enabled it to function, and that something, whatever it was, like Rashi, parchment with divine name, whatever it was, that was missing, that was physically not there during the, during the Second Temple. There are several other pshatim in the Rishonim as well. There are some, uh, there are some very interesting ones. Rabbi Yossi Bechar Shar. Rabbi Yossi Bechar Shar, always one of, the, one of the great pashtanim, often has, often has rather interesting things to say. He seems, to, he seems to combine the sacred and the mundane in a fascinating combination. He says that the Urim Tumim was a sort of land registry. Tumim means gvulim. It had the, it had the boundaries of the, tri, of the portions, of land, of, portions of the land of Israel that were allocated to the, the, the 12 tribes in the time of Yoshua. It said, Tchum ploni leploni about as uh, down-to-earth and as, uh, as, uh, as mundane a thing as you can imagine. It, it, there, there, there was, essentially, there were deeds and there were, there were, there were land records about which, which, which shaven had which property. And they put those in the Choshen. Why? So he says, because the Choshen is referred to the Choshen Mishpat. The Choshen has something to do with Mishpat. Commentaries offer various explanations for what's the connection between this beautiful and colorful garment and Mishpat. So Mishpat, says the Bukhar Shar, a land registry preserves law. It preserves law and order. And nobody could complain and say that you're uh, encroaching on my boundaries. I'm supposed to be there. They would look in the Khoshan. The Khoshan said that, uh, this is, that this is where, it says where everyone is supposed to be. 
And moreover, he says, when they actually performed the Garel, the lottery in the time of Yoshua, and the lottery, this I guess was an ace, this was Menashemayim, but the lottery worked out that every Shevet got the, every Shevet via the Garel got the portion that was written in the Choshen, and Ruch HaKodesh ate it in this as well, and nobody could complain because they all saw that it was all Menashemayim, it was all as written in the Choshen, he brings the, he brings in Baba Bastra. So I'll call upon him, Bukhar Shar understands that the, Bukhar Shar understands that the Choshen was some kind of mystic land registry, that it was supposed to keep track of, where, of what, the, what portions the Shvatim had. It was, supposed to, it was supposed to ensure that people accepted the divisions of land and didn't complain and didn't say that you have my portion and what I got is not fair and, it's not, and I want some what, what you have. That's what the, that's what the Urim Vatumim was. It was, a, it, was a, uh, it was essentially some kind of religious, divinely inspired land registry. Rashbam. Rashbam says that the Rashbam has a pshat uh, again. Rashbam also exp- typically explains b'derech pshat. His pshat is similar to Rashi. There was something in the style of a mystic amulet. It had divine names. He said it would it would help it would help inform the Jewish people of the law and of what they needed. He says that the non-Jews, the, the Gentiles, he says use trophim and ksamim. Lavan had like Bilam talks about kilo nachash biyakov lo kesem biyisrael. And they use Ruch so if that works, the Rashbam understands that works. The Rashbam was a Pashtun, but not a rationalist. The Rashbam understands that the that black magic and occult practices utilized by the Gentiles, that works for them. So Lahavdal, Kamahavdalo, certainly he says in in the in the Koach HaKedusha, religiously, we have a shame Tara, Kalvachomer. It was uh, it had it had power. It had uh, just like just like the, the occult practices of the Gentiles have power to predict the future and to provide uh, mystic information, so things involving uh, Kedusha and Tara can do, the, can, do the, can do the same thing as well. And so, there, and, and so we, we have a variety of different explanations of what exactly the Urim Batumim is. What I want to focus on tonight is a very, very mysterious, very, very obscure and somewhat provocative explanation of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, we have at least three versions of what he said. Ibn Ezra, we have what he wrote in the Pirush Aruch, the long commentary, which is the standard commentary printed in traditionally in most Hamashim. We have the Pirush HaKatzar, which is a, another version of his commentary, which has been printed more recently in, in various editions. Then we have a brief comment that he wrote in Yisod Mora, a philosophical religious work that he wrote. Ibn Ezra, throughout his works, throughout these various works, seems to connect the Urim Batumim to astronomic or astrological concepts. He writes, uh, he criticizes Rashi, and then he writes that the Urim, not the Tumim, but the Urim, he says, were made out of Zahav Kesef, were made out of gold and silver. So they were, they were not parchment with a divine name, they were made out of metal. And what were they exactly? So then he starts talking in, in code, and he starts, he starts speaking in tongues virtually. He says, The high and the low, he says, And he who is enlightened will understand this. And certainly those of us who are not enlightened, like me, are going to have a great deal of trouble understanding. He goes on and he says, that loyachalti, if I wanted to reveal this mystery to you, I would not be able to. And loyavinenu uh, mishlo lamad sefer amidas, 
someone who hasn't studied uh, the appropriate works won't understand what I'm trying to tell you. Bestowed Melech HaShemayim, the secret of the work of the heavens, and uh, he's not going to tell you more than that. In the, that's the Pirush HaAruch. In the Pirush HaKatzer, he tells you, he actually tells you a little bit more. He tells you, know, more, but more words anyway, different words. He tells you the Urim V'tumim were Bechesh Ben Agul, they were in a calculation of a circle. Ve'ata, he says, Bekach Necha, open your eyes. The throne sits on two anvils, Nasun, and the, something about a Kav Yashar, a straight line, Shisha Betzafon, six in the north, and he goes on about lines and directions, and uh, once again, he is not very clear about what he's trying to tell you. In Yisod Mara, he again refers to the Cheshbon, the Ogul, and uh, something about the, the way they were when Moshe erected the Mishkan, Again, those who are wise, those who uh, understand the secrets being talked about here, will understand what he is uh, trying to say. Again, very, very mysterious. The, the, the casual reader, the modern reader, one unfamiliar with the Benezra's world, uh, certainly is not going to understand much of what he is saying. The Ramban, I don't know what exactly the Ramban thought Ibn Ezra was saying, but the Ramban is not happy with the Benezra as he often is not. The Ramban writes that Savar Rabbi Avram l'ischakem binyan horum v'tumim Ibn Ezra thought he was being smart, he was being clever about the horum v'tumim and he said they're made of gold and silver. That was one of the very few uh, coherent and understandable things Ibn Ezra actually said that they're made of gold and silver. Says the, says, says, says the Ramban what does Ibn Ezra think they are? Ki chashav that Ibn Ezra think shehem al tzuro sheyasu balei hakochavim ladas machsheves hashoel they are forms, they're instruments that are made by Bale HaKochavim, stargazers, astrologers, Ladas Machsheves HaShoel, to understand the mind of the questioner. Ibn Ezra is wrong. What he's saying is completely wrong. So again, what they are exactly is hard to know, but Ramban thinks, Ibn Ezra thinks, that they have something to do with tools and implements used by astrologers. Abiyashif Tov Elam II Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam was a, not to be confused with Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam I, one of the Balitosis from the time of Rashi. Rabbi Yosef Tov Elam II was 300 years later, was a 14th century figure. He wrote an entire work explaining Ibn Ezra. He, uh, he felt Ibn Ezra deserved a much wider audience, and people weren't understanding what he was writing because he wrote so cryptically, which is certainly true. Much of Ibn Ezra is impossible to understand without uh, super-commentaries, and there are quite a lot of these super-commentaries. Yosef Tov Elam wrote an entire work called Safnas Paneach, explaining, uh, trying to explain Ibn Ezra. It wasn't published in its entirety until about a century ago, but it was, um, versions of it were known to, uh, to earlier, earlier authorities. So he writes, he quotes Ibn Ezra in the Pirush HaKatzar, in the Yisod Mora, and he says that, that the, what Ibn Ezra is describing are ideas of the celestial bodies, astronomy or astrology. He says, when he refers to the, the Orem Gedolim, Urim is like Orem Gedolim, the, 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 two, the two big celestial bodies, the sun and the moon. When he refers to Cheshbon uh, HaAgol, the, the, the calculation of the circle is five. He's referring to the, the other five of the planets. The, the medieval thinkers used to talk about the Shiva Koch Veleches, there are the fixed stars, what we call stars, and then there are the Shiva Koch Veleches, the seven movable stars, which are the seven items you can see in the sky that move in relation to the rest. 
which are the Sun, the Moon, and the five visible planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So they refer to the celestial bodies, and he goes on, and he explains that the, they have to do with the Mazelos, the 12 stones on the Choshen have to do with the Mazelos, and he retorts very sharply to the Ramban. He says Ramban criticizes Ibn Ezra. Ramban didn't understand Ibn Ezra. He has no business criticizing him, he says, and so on. And then he goes on in an elaborate explanation of what exactly he thinks the Ibn Ezra is saying. But again, that the, the, according to the pshat that emerges from Ibn Ezra, the, the bits and pieces we can understand, the bits and pieces of Ibn Ezra, as understood by Ramban already and by uh, Ramban and by, and by Rabbi Yosef Tovelam II, that the Ibn Ezra is describing some kind of implement, some kind of instruments used by astrologers or astronomers. What exactly that has to do with Urim Vitumim? Why is that sitting in the... What, what does it have to do with the Choshen of the Kohen Gadol? All very mysterious, but again, we'd have, to, we'd have to get a better understanding of the role that astrology plays in the thought of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is something of a philosopher, he's something of a rationalist. However, as many educated people of the medieval period uh, did, he believed in astrology. He did believe that astrology was a profound and, uh, profound and true science, and apparently he understood that astrology was, was a way that God, it was God's gift to the Jewish people, the ability to use astrological techniques to understand the world, to, to even predict the future. And the, astro, and the, and this, and the Orem Vitumim was some kind of tool, some kind of instrument used by astrologers to help them understand the, understand the motion of the spheres and to help them in their understanding of astrology or astronomy. This is echoed briefly by... Mare Nayim, Rabbi Azariah de Rossi, in the 16th century, the controversial uh, early, modern, early modern scholar of the 16th century. So he has a discussion of the Urim Batumim. He says that at the end of the day, that he, he points out the, the striking fact that we have very little in the literature of Chazal that explains what it is. They talk about how we ask questions to it, they describe what you do with it, but in the literature of Tanoim and Amaraim, Chazal never really tell us what it is. The Pshat that everyone knows about the parchment with Hashem's name. That comes from Rashi, that, 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 that's not actually a statement of Chazal. So he says, we don't really know what they are, we don't really have a solid explanation for what they are. He says, uh, Rashi says, Shem Mefarash, but he doesn't, we don't know what Rashi's source is. Ibn Ezra, he says, what does Ibn Ezra say? Ibn Ezra, he understood Ibn Ezra to be saying, tagninus. he understood them as something in connection with astrology. It was the instrument known as the astrolabe, and uh, Rabbi Azari de Rossi is not impressed. We don't have to spend time on all the earlier commentaries. Everything they've said, uh, everything they've said is really nonsense, as Ramban said about Ibn Ezra. He's not impressed by the speculation of these Rishonim. But Ibn Ezra apparently understood that the Urim Vatumim has something to do with astrology, something to do with the astrolabe. Now, this pshat that Ibn Ezra has to do with the astrolabe appears in the Rashba. It appears in a very interesting context of the Rashba. In, in, the, in the Rashba's time, in the early, it was almost at the end of the Rashba's life, in the early 14th century, the Jewish world saw one of the great uh, eruptions of the Maimonidean controversies. The, the, the first iterations had been around the time of the Rambam himself, but this was, this was a century or two later, but in the time of the Rashba, there was a tremendous battle that, that arose between those Jews who saw themselves as the intellectual heirs of the Rambam 
They believed in studying philosophy. They believed in, a, in rationalizing Judaism and reconciling it with what educated people of the time believed, medieval scholasticism, followers of Aristotle, and so on. And that was one school, the Jews of Provence, who studied philosophy and uh, were educated in the, in, the, in the Chachmas of the Gentiles and so on. And they, they spent their lives harmonizing Judaism with that. On the other side, we had the traditionalists. We had those who thought that the philosophy may have had some value, but the study of it was pernicious for Jews. It, le- it leads people astray. It leads them to heresy and to reject the Torah. By the Rashba's time, the Rambam's reputation was so... Was, was, was cemented so strongly that the, that, the, that the opponents of philosophy had to hasten to assure their audiences that chas v'shalom, we're not criticizing the Rambam, we just think that these people are not legitimately following the Rambam, but the Rambam, of course, is wonderful. But they had a very, very, they had a very heated and uh, they had a very sharp battle in the Rashba's time between those Jews who believed in the study of philosophy, who approved of it, and those Jews who were opposed to it. The Rashba himself tried hard to avoid getting enmeshed in the Machlokas. He, he resisted several, several, uh, several, se- several, in, several entreaties to, uh, to get involved. Finally, he just, and finally, the, he, he, they, they, they kept, uh, they kept uh, persuading him to, to get involved, and he, he was persuaded, and finally he did, he did agree that some of the philosophers were saying uh, terrible things and were guilty of various heresies, so he did agree to become involved, and he signed a great ban on the study of philosophy. It was a local ban, only in Barcelona, and only, only until people were 25. It was fairly limited, but he did, he did uh, inveigh against the evils of the study of philosophy. So, and he wrote several uh, full-throated, uh, poetic and eloquent, but vehement uh, takedowns of the study of philosophy. One of the key issues during this battle, one of the key aspects of the, of, of the, of the, of the argument was that the, the traditionalists accused the philosophers of over-allegorization, of being willing to interpret the Torah in a non-literal way, in a completely, in a completely uh, allegorical and non-literal way. And this was something they felt that, th- th- that th- this just crossed the line. That at, some point you're, at some point, you're taking the Torah so far out of what it literally means that, 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 you're, that you're guilty of heresy. So the Rashba, in one of his letters... He lists the, the pernicious examples of allegory that these people are saying. He heard, he said, that they say everything in Bereshit and Tilmat and Torah, Hakol Mashal, everything is an allegory. This is a doctrine that's become popular again in some religious circles, that the flood of Noah was an allegory, and so on. So the Rashba didn't have much use for this, uh, for this idea. People say Avram and Sarah are Homer and Surah. Biblical Abraham and Sarah are philosophical allegories for form and matter. And Shnei Bnei Yaakov, the twelve tribes, were the twelve constellations, and so on and so on. And Gam Shamanu, even, even more, the Rashba says, even worse, I've heard, he says, Kiba Mitzvah Not just the narrative portions of the Torah that they've tried to interpret as allegories, but they've said that even some of the halachic portions of the Torah, even some of the, the actual concrete halacha they've said is allegory. For example, they've said, Ki Urim Vitumim Heimeleches Haastrolim. They've said that the Urim Vitumim is the medieval astrolabe. Tefillin, they said, it's, they said it's tefillah, and it's, uh, it's, not, it's not really tying tefillin on your head. But one of the, one of the egregious examples the Rashba gives of, of what these people were saying, they've said that the holy Urim Vitumim is an astrolabe, is, is, is a medieval astrological or astronomical instrument. So this is the Prashad of the Benezra to some extent, uh, as, we've saw, as we've seen in the various... Uh, Rishonim and Achronim who have tried to explain to Ben Ezra, I'm still not sure exactly what Ben Ezra thought. 
Azari de Rossi said he thinks it's an astrolabe, that Ibn Ezra thinks it's an astrolabe. He doesn't agree, but he thinks that's what Ibn Ezra thinks. Ibn Ezra does seem to have said it has something to do with astrology. Again, whether this is exactly what the Rashbam means or not, hard to know, but, the, but, but this was apparently an idea that was circulating in the Rashba's time as well, that Urim Vitumim was an astrolabe, and the Rashba thinks this is a terrible, terrible thing, and, uh, and he, he, again, he quotes in another letter, these people think, these people say that Urim Vitumim is Kliha astrolabe, he says, Asher Yaslehem Anashim, the thing that humans make for themselves, a scientific instrument, he says, can you imagine such uh, heretical children? He says that uh, these are the nechashim, hanoshchem asa'am, and asrafim hanechashim. These are just such terrible, terrible people saying such terrible things about the Torah. I'll call upon him this idea that the Oren Batum is an astrolabe. Maybe the Benazra held that way. Maybe some Chacham in the Rashba's time held that way. Rashba himself was not impressed, to say the least. Now, ironically, in, a, in an incredibly delicious irony, the one major discussion of the astrolabe in halacha in Jewish literature, besides this, uh, besides this uh, obscure Ibn Ezra, is the Rashba himself. The Rashba has a tshuva, which is... But before, before we go any further, let's talk briefly about what an astrolabe actually is. The bottom line is, I don't really know. It's an archaic instrument that was used in the medieval period. We don't use it anymore. It is a, according to the Britannica... It is a type of early scientific instrument used for reckoning time and for observational purposes. It was some kind of early rudimentary analog computer. It had helped people make... It was not, as, as people sometimes assume, some kind of optical instrument for making observations. It was more like a, it was more like a calculator. It was some kind of mechanical calculator to make uh, astronomical calculations easier. It was made out of metal. It had different parts, and they, you move the parts to somehow uh, help you to, to perform various various calculations. It was, some versions would be used in navigation, replaced by the sextant, which was uh, apparently a better and more effective way of doing uh, marine navigation. But anyway, this was something that was usually popular in the medieval period. It was used occasionally as a symbol of wisdom, of science, of, of astronomy, and you know, the, the medieval thinkers could hold it up as kind of a, a symbol of uh, a symbol of human of human intellect of human of, of human accomplishments in science and math. But uh, again, we don't use it today. But uh, the astrolabe, from the medieval perspective, was some kind of instrument. It was not an optical instrument. It was more of a mechanical calculator. And the Rashba, going to the Rashba now, the Rashba has an incredibly important tshuva on the use of the astrolabe. We'll discuss soon why it's such an important tshuva. But the Rashba is the single discussion in Halacha, single widely quoted discussion in Halacha about the use of the astrolabe. The Rashba's question was, are you allowed to operate an astrolabe on Shabbos? So that was, that was what they asked the Rashba. Says the Rashba, yes, you are. Why? He says, the astrolabe is a keli. It's a, it's a utensil. It's something that has a purpose. So it's not muksa. He says, once it's not muksa, you're allowed to use it, he says. And in particular, the Rashba says, it is like Echad Misifra Chachma. It's, it's like a book. It's like a science book, he says. What's the difference if you have information written down on paper or parchment, or information written down or encoded in the mechanical workings of an astrolabe? A scientific instrument, from a halakhic perspective, is no different from a book, he says. Then the Rashba gets into a discussion. Are you worried about taking the pieces apart or putting them back together? Maybe that's a question of Machabapatish or Bona, building or fixing on Shabbos. The Rashba says it's not. He goes through a technical discussion of various Gemaras about the, 
various Gemaras about the Helcha Shabbos, about when Chazal did prohibit such things, when they didn't. So the Rashba goes on, again, without knowing exactly what an astrolabe looks like, the discussion will be of limited value, but the, the Rashba basically concludes that there is no violation of the laws of Shabbos involved in the operation and manipulation of an astrolabe, and therefore the Rashba says it is mutter. So again, in summary, the Rashba says, what's the problem with an astrolabe? You worried about mukta? Why should it be mukta? It's, it's, it's a keli that has, a, that has a use on Shabbos. You worried about boner, makiba patish? Not a problem either, and therefore it is permitted to use the astrolabe on Shabbos. Now again, we don't use astrolabes today. So this tshuva, you might think, is of limited practical import. But as a matter of fact, this is of immense practical import, and it, 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 it is the root of a halacha, which... I think it's no exaggeration to say many of us, or most of us, probably uh, rely on every single Shabbos. The Beis Yosef in Helcha Shabbos, the Beis Yosef is discussing the, the sugya and the Gemara and Shabbos of Shtari Hediotis. Chazal in Masecha Shabbos, the Mishnah, the Gemara, Chazal instituted a sweeping, very broad prohibition on reading on Shabbos. What's wrong with reading on Shabbos? So Chazal were worried that reading business is Osir on Shabbos. Reading business materials, business correspondence, business intelligence is Osir on Shabbos because you may come to write. Business is, business is uh, inextricably bound up with writing, and if you engage in business activities, you may come to write. So Chazal said you can't read business documents on Shabbos. Moreover, Chazal prohibited all kinds of other reading on Shabbos. You can't read captions on paintings, and you can't read uh, guest lists when, you, when you're having a party. Chazal give examples of a number of other categories of the written word that you're not allowed to read on Shabbos. So all kinds of stuff, Chazal said, was prohibited because of Shtari Hadyotos, the Xerah of reading, ultimately a Xerah of reading business documents, which might lead to writing. So Chazal, however, unfortunately, never give us a, a systematic and precise definition of what categories of reading materials are included in Shtari Hadyotos. So the Beis Yosef has a discussion, what about reading science or math? What about reading Divrei Chachma? Torah certainly is mutter. The Chachma of Torah is certainly mutter. Chumash, Mishnah, Gemara, Midrash is all mutter. But, Musr. but what about reading Chachma? What about reading math? What about reading science? So the Beis Yosef says, the Rambam in Pirisha Mishnah says, you're not allowed to read anything on Shabbos except for Sifrei Nevuah, Tanakh, Pirushim of Nevuah, Pirushim of Navi, Obviously, other parts of Torah, the Ram is understood to have allowed. Even Chachma is Asr. General Chachma, Chachma of science or math, or whatever the Ramam would have called Chachma, is still Asr. And the Beis Yosef says that is the opinion of the Ran as well, that other types of Chachma are Asr as well. Only Torah. Torah is Mutzer, everything else is Asr. Chachma is Asr. Who is the dissenting view? Says the Beis Yosef, the Rashba we just saw is the dissenting view. The Rashba says the astrolabe is mutter to use on Shabbos because it is just like studying books of Chachma. The Rashba obviously assumes studying books of Chachma is mutter. The astrolabe is simply a mechanical, uh, a mechanical metal version of the Sefer of Chachma. And therefore, the Rashba says that the Rashba takes for granted that reading Sifrei Chachma is mutter. Other Rishonim also Paskin like that. He brings from the he brings the Rashba and the Ramban say you can read medicine, read medical works on Shabbos because it's Chachma. Chachma is mutter. Business Chazal Asr. Chachma is mutter. So this is the Machlokas. The Rashba and the Ramban say that uh, say that reading Chachma is mutter on Shabbos. The Rambam and the Ran say that reading Chachma is Asr on Shabbos. 
just just stop. I, I just never I just never tire of contemplating the the amazing irony of this. The Rashba, the Rashba is the one who led the, the most prominent figure in the anti-philosophical camp who who castigates the, the philosophers for saying that Urmatum is the astrolabe. He, he's, he's on the one hand the one person who came out most strongly, most critical of those who introduced the astrolabe into the Urmatumim. On the other hand, he is Dafka He. He's the one who said, for all his opposition to philosophy and, sci- and, and, and getting involved in anything outside Torah, Dafka He, he's the one who said that Sifre Chachma is Mutter on Shabbos, the astrolabe is Mutter on Shabbos, read, read wisdom on Shabbos, everything is fine. And Stavka the Rambam, the Rambam is, of course, the, the one who is most closely identified in, in Jewish history with Chachma, with, with studying the wisdom of the non-Jews, with philosophy, with being a rationalist. He's the one, people don't realize this, he's the one who said you're not allowed to read Chachma on Shabbos, you're not allowed to read anything except Torah on Shabbos. The Machlokas is not necessarily a, a philosophical Machlokas, it has to do with a fairly technical question of what did Chazal prohibit under the rubric of Shtari Hediotis. But nevertheless, the irony is, is amazing here that it is Dafka the Rashba who on the one hand has this, this incredibly negative comment about the astrolabe in the context of Pirusha Mikra, in the context of understanding the Urmvatumim. Dafka, he's the one who said, you can use an astrolabe on Shabbos, you can read Sifre Chachman Shabbos, and Dafka the Rambam, who, is, uh, who personifies the appreciation and admiration of Chachma, Chachma of the non-Jews, he's the one who said, but you're not allowed to read their works on Shabbos. How do we paskin? How do we paskin to this machlokas? So the Shulchan Aruch brings both views. The Shulchan Aruch writes that first he, first he brings the Rambam b'shtam. He says, You're not allowed to study on Shabbos anything except Torah, even Sifrei Chachmos is Aser. So the Rambam Shita, he brings b'shtam, and there is an opinion that's lenient. And al Pisvarasu, he says, based on the Rashba, based on the lenient view, Mutter lahabet ba'astrolebe b'shabbos. Astrolebe made it to the Shulchan Aruch. The lenient view allows reading Sifrei Chachma. It allows using the astrolebe. That is the lenient view. How do we paskin? Mishnah Brewer says the minhag is like the lenient view to allow reading Sifrei Chachma on Shabbos. The kasev el Yeraba, the Yari Shemayim, Roy lahachmer b'zeh. Ki Yerambam v'haran ostrum. El Yeraba says that a person should be machmer because there are gedoli harishonim who were machmer. But the minhag clearly is to be mekel. And this is, this is really, this is really the, the crux of the matter. Reading anything outside Torah, whether it's a novel, whether it's a math book, whether it's a science book, whether it's, the, you know, whether it's any, reading anything really on Shabbos outside Torah is really going to be, to a large extent, totally on this machlokas. A Yare Shemayim should only read Torah, the Mishabura says, El Yerabba says, but uh, the, the, the Minog is to be lenient based on the Rashba to read, just like the Rashba allowed the astrolabe, the Minog is to be lenient to allow reading other types of Chachma. Occasionally, you'll read modern works, and they talk about how a Yerush should be Machmer, because Shabbos was given for Menucha and for Torah, and not for, not for uh, Dvarim of Chol. And that's not exactly what the Eli Rabbah says. The Eli Rabbah says you should be Machmer because the Rambam is Machmer. The Rambam is Machmer because of the technical Gzeira of Shtari Hadyotos, not, not because of the character of Shabbos, but one, one way or another, the Halacha is, for Ashkenazim in particular, to be lenient, the Meikar Adin, although some Sfardim are more Machmer, I saw several leading Sfardic poskim are much stricter about this, Ravadi Yosef, and others are actually much stricter, the Machaber says the Iker is like the first Shita, so some Sfardim are much stricter about it, but the Minhag, certainly for Ashkenazim, is to be lenient. So now the question is, what is included in Chachma? Is history Chachma? Is Shakespeare Chachma? Is Milton Chachma? Is, uh, a, modern, is, is a modern detective thriller? Is, is that Chachma? 
what exactly is included in this dispensation of Chachma. For those who are lenient, what exactly is included. So the Balitosis didn't seem to think that history was considered Chachma. Tosfus and the Rush, they write stories about wars. We typically call that history, military history, but stories about wars, they write, are usher. Again, not, not necessarily because they're, uh, they're, they're somehow not Shabbosdik, but because Eshtari Hediotus. Whether Tosfus held all Chachma's usher, whether he held that history is not Chachma, Tosfus basically held that stories of wars are usher. However, Tosis goes even further and says that even during the week, you're not allowed to read that stuff because it is Moshe of Leitzim. It is not productive. It's, a, it's simply a waste of time. It is a frivolous and inappropriate use of time. And Shulchan Aruch actually brings this. Shulchan Aruch actually says that Melitzos Meshalem Shalsichas Chulin, different types of literature, it's unclear exactly what's being referred to. Some of the references are to out and out pornography, some of them are just to uh, frivolous and low and vulgar literature. Divrei Cheshek, Emmanuel, Sifrei Melchamos, Books of Wars. You're not allowed to read them on Shabbos, and even during the week you're not allowed to read them because of Moshe of Leitzim, and so on, and they're terrible. Then the Shulchan Aruch brings Machlokas about Chachma. So whatever the first category is of literature and history is not Chachma and is Aser, and uh, Chachma is Machlokas with, with there being two opinions. Again, it's not clear whether Shulchan Aruch really means to include all history and literature in the category of not Chachma, some types of literature he felt were frivolous and pointless, you know, epics and things that were just bragging or of uh, old Greek myths, maybe, I don't know. The problem is, of course, we obviously don't conduct ourselves according to this Shulchan Aruch, because we certainly read them during the week. Whatever we do on Shabbos, we read them during the week. We, we study Shakespeare, you know, we read Milton, we read, uh, we read Homer or whatever it is, and uh, we read other things also that maybe have less uh, timeless value. So... The Shulchan Aruch, whatever he holds these things are, he holds the Rasser during the week as well. So again, it's not exactly clear how we limb this category, what's included, what's not included. But uh, the question of whether history is included in Chachma is actually discussed by various contemporary poskim. And surprisingly enough, perhaps, a number of you know, relatively uh, mainstream poskim assume that history is not Chachma. Rav Simcha Bunim Cohen, the author of the popular Shabbos Home, Shabbos Kitchen, you know, the, the, the series of books on Elcha Shabbos, he takes for granted that history is not Chachma. Maybe he's based on this Tosfus and the Shulchan Aruch, maybe not, I'm not sure. He takes for granted that history is not Chachma. Similarly, the Archa Shabbos, Rav Rubin, an Israeli postsek, also not 100% sure, but he also assumes that history would not be Chachma, he thinks. He thinks that, uh, he thinks that Mestavari says that, that, um, is not Chachma. He discusses what about something like economics. Economics is certainly can be studied academically. It can certainly can certainly study academic economics. It's also obviously a business discipline. You can study it for the purpose of running a business or running a country more effectively. He's inclined to think that economics, what he calls Chachma uh, Samischar, that that's I guess what we call business today. What you study for an MBA program, Taras Hakalkala economics. He says he's not sure about that. That he's uncertain whether that's Chachma. So he's not sure in any of these categories. He seems to think that learning a trade, learning carpentry or computer programming or something, he thinks that would not be Chachma. Tzarechiyun, he says, or Shlomo Zalman Orbach in Pnir Shabbos Kelchasa actually said that reading a cookbook would be considered Chachma. That's also Chachma. Chachma doesn't have to mean astrophysics and, uh, and number theory. Chachma can mean uh, how to cook food. That's also a kind of culinary science, so to speak. That's also Chachma. 
Rav Rubin is not convinced. He doesn't think that's real Chachma, the way, what the medievals would have called real Chachma, what the Talmud would have called Chachma. He's not convinced. So there are poskim who are somewhat strict about this, who say that even the Heter of Chachma itself, we said, is somewhat dubious. The poskim say Yerei Shemayim should be Yerei Shemayim should be strict, strict about it. But even if you're lenient about Chachma, we do find that there are uh, that there are significant poskim who have assumed that Chachma needs to be interpreted in a fairly narrow way to what you know, the Grand Chachma, so to speak, what the, what the what the what Grand Chachma and excluding history, which again is a very narrow definition. Rav Simcha Burim Cohen, for example, says you can study science, mathematics, and medicine, but you can study those in the Ikra Din. However, he says history is absolutely usser. All secular material that's not Chachma is usser. Secular history books, certainly fictional novels, you can't read fiction on Shabbos, according to him. Newspapers is a separate discussion. This is obviously a uh, very, very strict view. I saw. I haven't been able to track down that much of a uh, of what contemporary postmen have actually said about things like fiction, about things like history. Aside from the couple I've quoted, I uh, aside from the couple I've quoted, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure. Rabbi Eliezer Malamid says you can't read what he calls, or the translator calls, run-of-the-mill secular material and stories if they have no value. But if you enjoy reading them. I don't know why you'd read them if you don't enjoy reading them, but if you, if you enjoy reading them, then that's what he says. You shouldn't read depressing stories, because being sad on Shabbos is not appropriate. And, uh, and then he brings, then he brings, the, the, and, then he, and so on, and then he says that, that Shabbos is really, uh, that, 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 that it's good to read Torah on Shabbos, it's good to read, it's good to read things that are, uh, it's good to read, um, Anyways, right, so he brings that he brings that secular material that has value may be read on Shabbos, but uh, not if they have no value. So again, I, I assume he would probably say Milton and Shakespeare do have value, whether a uh, you know Tom Clancy or Agatha Christie, whether they have value, I don't know. And, you know again, I, I don't know what how he defines value, where he gets this distinction from exactly. I'm not sure. So I don't really know what contemporary postkim uh, what contemporary postkim hold about. Uh, Hold about what exactly you can and can't read, can and can't read on Shabbos. Rabbi Yar Hoffman has uh, has an article I read in which he says, unfortunately, without naming names, he says that although the Archa Shabbos and those take a very strict view that it has to be a, what we would call a hard science, he spoke to Poskim, he claims, who have a much broader definition of what's called Chachma, quality books that increase your intelligence, he says. He quotes again, he claims he's heard varying opinions. I wish I knew who these opinions were. But in any event, this is the, the, the this is the issue that the Rashba in the context of the astrolabe says Chachma is mutter. The Rambam says Chachma is aser. The, the halacha is Mikur din you can be lenient, but poskim recommend that one is stringent. Although again, I think there is a widespread custom to be somewhat lenient. Although, but but even according to the lenient view, it is a uh, it, it, there is still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity about what exactly is included under the rubric of Chachma.